Please turn back to Psalm 118, page 616. As a history student of many, many years ago, I always loved in the Bible, uh, and indeed outside the Bible, prime in the Bible, to see the wonderful way in which generations overlap and to see the strange sovereignty of God in history. Always remember, history is his story. And you'll only understand history if you see how God sovereignly is at work, and you can still believe that in the strange things happening in our world of today. And you get a very much of Psalm 118 as we look at this psalm and this new series we're having for the next few weeks in the lead up to Easter. For you see, here we are in Psalm 118. I'm preaching on it in Sheffield in uh, this century, uh, after Christ, 2,000 years after Christ. And yet this psalm was written, what, hundreds of years before Christ? We're not exactly sure when, nor by whom. It might be David who wrote many of the psalms. That would fit in with verse 10 uh, and all the nations surrounding him. But in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. But it's going back a long way. Um, but it goes back further. For when this psalm is written, there's a reference in verse 14 to a song from the Exodus. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. So we're going way, way back. And yet we see that God can still speak through these verses. Oh, and let's move on. This is one of the Hallel Psalms. The Hallel Psalms were sung at Passover time, from which we get uh, the uh, Hallelujah. Now that I'm sort of itinerant in ministry, I go to some churches where they join in with the Hallelujahs. You've got to wait for this. And the Hallelujah from the congregation. It's not a habit we have at Christ Church Fullwood saying Hallelujah, but you're entitled to it if you feel like it. But here's the Hallelujah. It's an Hallelujah psalm. That is, they sang this song. Jesus and his disciples would sing it when they went from the upper room to go into the Garden of Gethsemane. They'd have sung it on that Palm Sunday day when they marched with the crowds. And indeed, in this Psalm 118, in verse 26, you get that blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which was chanted by the crowds on that Palm Sunday. So it's good to have this little series where we're looking at the events of Holy Week. You've got next week, Good Friday, and the week after Easter Sunday, we're anticipating those great events. It's, when you see the Psalms, they are actually giving us an insight and they're glorious in themselves. I seem to remember I did a little series years and years ago called Glory in Embryo. That is, sometimes the embryo is a lovely picture. Oh, it's greater when you get to the story of Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter, far more than the psalmist could have known. But there's a glory in embryo. Some of you may remember when I was vicar here, we... For my sins, I used to run a thing called a Christmas party for all ages of dubious value. But I wanted to look at 9.15, did remember it with Thanksgiving, you'd be surprised. And one of my special games for Christmas was always you brought a picture of yourself when you were a baby and a picture of yourself when you are, as you are now and people have to guess which baby became which adult. It was great fun, really. In some cases, it didn't change very much. You had the... <laughs> the bald baby became the bald man and you never know what happened in between. Uh, but there was a kind of, now I see how this becomes that. And how Psalm 118 becomes the glory of, uh, of, of Palm Sunday? Well, that's uh, what we shall discover as we go through it. It was a psalm that they sung. It was a liturgical psalm. There in verse 27 you get the picture. 
They're joining the festal procession and going up to the horns of the altar. And that's why we've got open for me the gates of righteousness back in verse 19. It was a processional psalm and they sang it as they went up to the temple. Now I'm not very good at clerical processions. Occasionally as a clergyman you've got to walk in procession. I was never quite sure where I fitted in, which, which, which part I had to play. And I was only once ever a bishop's chaplain. I always avoided it. I kept my head down when the bishop looked for a chaplain. But once he collared me. And I did, all I, you had to do was walk in front of the bishop with a pious look on your face. Well, I, I'm not very good at pious looks on your face. But I didn't know because, you see, I'd only seen bishops walk in. They used the stick as a walking stick. So I assumed you all did that. So I walked in front of the bishop and used his crook as my walking stick. And the bishop thumped me in the back, prodded me in the back and said, not yet, Philip, perhaps one day. But that was a, a, a prophecy never to be fulfilled, thankfully. Uh, but there is this liturgical note and indeed at the beginning of the psalm uh, you get the verses 2, 3 and 4 people joining in around his love endures forever and they'll pick it up again at the end so you've got that feeling of something liturgical but it's also terribly personal just note in verse 5 in my anguish I cried to the Lord he answered by setting me free the Lord is with me it's a very personal thing one of the beauties of the psalms is that they have this personal note Oh, as well, this great national note. They sang it as a group of people wanting God to bring salvation. They sang it on Palm Sunday, hoping that the rule of Rome would be ended and this Jesus might become their king and sit on a throne on earth. And they didn't know what they were singing. But ultimately, it's not just liturgical. It's not just national. It's desperately personal. And it's my hope that in a very wonderful way, it, this is history, you see, God in his story might take these events just to bring some of us as we get near to Palm Sunday uh, and Easter to be ready for it. Well, if you believe in the sovereign and strange way God works, I notice too a very intriguing little pattern. If you, if you look at your, if you have your notes back home, your cards, you, sh you should know I shouldn't be preaching this morning. It was really David Middleton who should be preaching, but he's got a very special meeting this afternoon and a special meeting tomorrow, and Paul uh, kindly gave him some time off and brought me off the subs bench. I was like being brought off the subs bench uh, to preach instead of him. So I'm here, and it's on the eve of the new church plant. And do you know, my notes tell me, I keep good notes from the past, that in, on Palm Sunday 2003, I was preaching on Psalm 118. Uh, they called it festival time. And I was preaching on Psalm 118, and the first church plant was just beginning we were about to send out the first 50 from here to be Christchurch central and so in a way uh, those are two links together ah, but it's not ended my notes then tell me that I preached in 1976 on this Psalm 118 in the series just before we opened that lot of buildings there uh, and you find if you look at the bottom of the foot of the stairs there's a little plaque because my wife opened the, the buildings, we couldn't get Princess Diana, she was busy, so Margaret did it instead. <laughs> and uh, 1976 was when we uh, opened that extension. And all these three events, church plant number one, church plant number three, extension buildings, were all saying, we're opening up new gates. We're continuing this message. We believe it's so important, we want to share it with others. But first, let's be sure we know it ourselves. There's something very personal about all this very rarely in my ministry here was I here on Palm Sunday 
very rarely. Uh, I used to need parish missions, and very often they would be in the week before Palm Sunday, so that new Christians could then enjoy Easter for the first time. And so Palm Sunday, I was nearly always away. And then I became chairman of, of Old Word Alive. We didn't call it Old Word Alive, we called it Word Alive. But now we've got a new Word Alive, so that's become Old Word Alive. You're with me? And I was chairman of Old Word Alive, and it always came to its climax on Palm Sunday. Or round about then. So I very often missed Palm Sunday. But I'm always reconciled to the fact that those who know their stuff will know that Palm Sunday doesn't exist in the Book of Common Prayer. I hope you know that. The Book of Common Prayer doesn't know of the existence of Palm Sunday. Uh, the Reformers didn't wander around giving out palm leaves. They didn't know all about that. So it's called the Sunday next before Easter. And the great Reformers wanted the whole of Holy Week to be centered on the cross. The palms are okay, but they fade. That didn't get very far. It was the cross that mattered. But again, if you know your stuff, there is a Palm Sunday narrative in the prayer book. It's the gospel for Advent Sunday, the first Sunday of the Christian year. And we read the story of Palm Sunday. Why then? Because it's a reminder that Jesus came in great humility as one day he'll come in majesty. I've got out of the habit of preaching two sermons in one morning. I suppose probably die of uh, uh, exposure at the end of this one. Uh, but I've, I've lost the sort of habit of, uh, you get, when you preach at 9, 15, 11, you always get somebody who puts you straight between the 9, 15 and 11. So at 11 o'clock, you've either got to adjust your message if you think they're worth listening to or uh, apologize. Well, I was, I was assured by a gentleman who knows all, all about the Middle East that actually... Uh, Riding on a donkey isn't necessarily a mark of humility. Because I'd said that was the point. I thought it was the point. When Jesus came into Jerusalem, he rode on a donkey. Well, if I'm wrong, the Book of Common Prayer has got it wrong as well. So I'll stand with the Book of Common Prayer. And they believe that it was Jesus coming in humility. And if I'm wrong, forgive me. But the message, I think, is there very clearly. There is a contrast between the first coming in this kind of kingship and the day when he will come. In great majesty. Ah, listen. When Jesus went into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday, he went into a moment when he was actually given the title King Jesus. The only time in his life he had the title King. He was strung on a cross and the title was Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. So the challenge comes to say, this, is a, this story, as we look on to Palm Sunday, is a reminder that uh, it was a festival time. They were singing their song. It was a festival of joy, a festival of hope, a festival of light. It was a festival of joy. Just notice the two parts. Verses 1 to 18 is coming to the gates. Verses 19 onwards is going, coming through the gates. And coming to the gates, there's much to praise God for, full of what the Lord's right hand has done, full of the fact they go back to the Exodus in verse 14. The Lord became their salvation and brought them out. It's full of all that. But would you notice something else? Have you noticed that the enemy's around? Oh yes, that's, he's there, all right. Verse 7, I will look in triumph on my enemies. Verse 10, all the nations surround me. Again, they're surrounding him in verse 11. And very vividly, they swarmed around me like bees. Yes, there were lots to say thank you for as they come to the gates. Much to praise. 
but there's an opposition. There's an enemy. There always will be. As I was looking over the, my talk, I was reading the Church Family News, last edition, a little uh, letter from Pete Jackson at Kendray, with whom we have many links, and it, just a, a solemn reminder that a church where things are beginning to happen in a wonderful way, we've had those links for a number of years now, yet he expresses uh, the sadness of finding hostility and opposition when he preached the word. And Pete, yes, it's ever been thus. It was always thus. The Apostle Paul finds it in 1 Corinthians when he says, look, the, the, there's a great door for the gospel open and there are many who oppose. It was ever thus. And of course, the glory of the gospel is the greatest opposition in the world in the sovereignty of God brought out the greatest gospel hope for the world. So we are reminded as we come to the gates that there will be opposition. Even verse 17 and 18, there'll be death. Do you notice how the Bible fulfills it wonderfully? Just look at it. Verse 16, the Lord, verse 18, the Lord has chastened Mr. Veely, but he has not given me over to death. Ah, well, that wouldn't be quite true, would it? Jesus did get given over to death. But he came through death. And so you get this great picture here. There will be opposition. But thank God for all he's doing. Coming to the gates, then coming through the gates. Who comes through the gates as they go on their procession? Well, you see in verse 20, it's the righteous who can enter. Psalm 24 has got the same idea. Lift up your heads, O you gates, but lift up your everlasting doors, that a king of glory can come in. Who can come in? Well, only the righteous king. But because the righteous king has entered, we all may enter. In the Epistle of the Hebrews, several times comes the picture of our Lord in his priestly kingship entering into heaven through his death and resurrection on our behalf and before us. And that's why this psalm is full of thanks. It ends with that note of thanks be to God several times. I noticed, well, the preachers keep notes in the past, it's useful. I noticed that in my sermon on 2000, in 2003, I made reference to the fact that a, a lovely man of God, uh, a man called Bob Hastings, had, had just died. And Bob Hastings, was a, uh, he came to Christ here. He worked with a number of men here. He, uh, he, was a, he was a great climber, was Bob Hastings. And uh, when eventually I took his funeral service across in Homesfield, where the family live, uh, it's interesting a little bit, there were couple in church this morning, 9.15, from Homesfield, who were visiting his widow this afternoon. She's not well, so they were so thrilled she were able to say that Bob had been mentioned. Bob, as a great climber, when I took his service, I, I was able to quote from a letter he sent out to all his friends. Apparently for a climber, when you hitch your rope onto a rock and it stands firm, you call that rock your thank God. Because if you're a good Christian, you say thank God reverently. And if you're not a Christian, you probably say irreverently. But it's a thank God. And you put your. And Bob, in his lovely letter, not long before he died, sent out to his friends, I have just hitched my, ro my rope on my final thank God. And I know it's absolutely secure. What a way in for a preacher at a funeral service to be able to say that. There was no doubt about the reality of it. And I said to all the other climbers there, have you pitched, put your rock, put your rope on the thank God that will hold for eternity? Oh, yes, it must be. I'm not a climber. 
but it must be wonderful to know that it, it stands firm when you're climbing. How much more important to know you've got your world hitched on that which is eternally true. And so, you see, here's this great picture, the festival of joy, because, you see, he's, uh, he's entered before. He is the righteous one. We may be righteous in him. That's why Romans 8, I should be speaking tomorrow, uh, this funeral, the first part of the funeral service tomorrow, I've asked to speak a bit on Romans 8, which starts off with no condemnation, those who are in Christ, and it ends with no separation. And if I want to know what it's my safety the other side, it's only because I've hitched my rope on the thank God of his, his secure salvation. Festival of joy, coming to the gates, coming through the gates. Second is a festival of hope. There are two pictures here. There's God's security and God's salvation. That's a picture in verse 22. The capstone. Elsewhere in the New Testament it talks about the cornerstone. I'm not an architect. You could find out the difference between the two. But they both speak about something that will make sure the building stands firm. And that theme runs right through the New Testament. The security. And the security is there in spite of the opposition. Do you see it there? The stone, verse 22, the builders rejected has become the capstone. Yes, the, the builders reject it, but the man of sorrows rejected is the cornerstone and we, are, we, we can build on him. When we read Luke chapter 19, did you note that bit when the Pharisees objected to all these people singing, blessed to you comes in the name of the Lord. Very un Stop it, stop it, said the Pharisees. And Jesus said, if they stopped it, the very stones would cry out. And the amazing providence of God's sovereignty is that he used the envy and enmity of the religious opposition to work out his plan of salvation. Oh, I thank God for that. All too often in history, the religious authorities have not been the way of the gospel. In my time as a minister, I was often called narrow-minded. Nothing worse than called narrow-minded. I always rejoice in being narrow-minded. I'm very happy to be narrow-minded because I always say to people, say I'm narrow-minded. Well, our Lord said the road that leads to life is narrow and therefore I'm very happy to be narrow-minded and the broad road leads to destruction. So I don't want to be a broad, I want to be a, a narrow. But to stand firm by the truth very often is to find that there is religious opposition. God's security is in Christ as the chief cornerstone which cannot be changed. God's security and God's salvation. That comes several times in our passage, verses 25 and 26. There is this, this note of uh, the Lord saving us. He has become my salvation, verse 14. Uh, verse 21, you have become my salvation. It is, of course, a national thing. It's to do with the, whole, the salvation of the nation. But he became a saviour of the nation in a way they didn't expect or want. Isn't it strange how the crowds that shouted Hosanna on Sunday were shouting crucify on Friday. Didn't take long to change it round. And yet the strange fulfilment of God's purposes, that was how he meant. Let me just read a verse which Peter quoted when he preached on the, the, the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, this astounding statement of the Apostle Peter, as he looked out over his crowd, this man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, 
and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Have you thought about that sermon? When Peter looked out on that crowd on the day of Pentecost, just a matter of weeks after our Lord had died on the cross, and he said, you nailed him to the cross. Hey, wait a minute, Peter. There's not a person in front of you who nailed him to the cross. There were no Roman soldiers there. They wouldn't be there. And not everybody had cried crucified. But nonetheless, he could claim that that group of people representing the Jewish nation, then you put him on the cross. And if Peter were here preaching today, and I was sat down there with Paul City now, I would expect him to say the same today. You nailed him to the cross. The sin of all of us that put him there. And yet it was by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. This is our hope of salvation. This is why it's a festival of hope as we come to Palm Sunday and look on to the great message of Easter. Festival of joy. Festival of hope. Festival of light. There you're in verse 27. The Lord is God. He has made his light shine upon us. <clears throat> if, you're in, if you're on processions, they used in those days, on this Hallel procession, they would have walked with their candelabra, they, they're carrying their lights in front of them. And some of you may remember that on, on December the 31st, 1999, the first time ever, we had a procession around this church carrying candles. We are a good evangelical reform church. We don't normally wander around with candles, but it was a special occasion, and Hugh Palmer, my successor, decided that we ought to do it. And uh, you can imagine, it's not quite in my scene, but I, 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 I did what I was supposed to do, and I got my candle ready to march around the church. A gentleman who's in this congregation, I better be careful what I say now, but I won't imitate him. A gentleman in this congregation who's a good Protestant uh, uh, nudged me in the back and said to me, well, if you can do it, I suppose I can. I always remember that phrase being used. And uh, I accepted the fact that so both of us uh, swallowing our, our Protestant pride marched around with our candles. I'm glad to say it's not like to happen until the next millennium, and I certainly won't be around then. Uh, so uh, all is well. Nothing wrong with candles. But the light of which these verses speak is not the light of candles. If you find candles helpful, God bless you. But it isn't going to make much difference to our salvation. What, it, what was the light? It was the light, first of all, in sacrifice. Do you see it there in verse 27? Up to the horns of the altar. What happened at the horns of the altar? What happened at the horns of the altar was if you were a person who was in need of being rescued from law, you could cling to the horns of the altar. And if you know your Bible, there are two or three occasions in the Bible when people did cling to the horns of the altar and nobody could touch them. It is the place where God's mercy and wrath meet. And therefore, the light of which we rejoice in is the light of sacrifice. The horns of the altar, which reminds us of what he sacrificed so that I need not sacrifice. On Good Friday afternoon, I've been asked to speak and I'll be dealing with a letter to the Galatians here, doing an hour around the Galatians. A letter which speaks a lot about the cross. The cross as the way to salvation. The cross as the way of sanctification. The cross in service, I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. So we are called to do that. Is it just possible even now? There's somebody here who needs who wants to be, needs to be called to this church plant, to leave our comfort zone, to go into a situation which would be rather different. Are we ready? 
Certainly it's true that until Christians do begin to bear more of the marks of Jesus, the world isn't going to be as impressed as they ought to be with the truth of the gospel. So it's a challenge to all of us. Let the light be seen in our sacrifice as we rejoice in his sacrifice. We may not win salvation by our sacrifice, but we may help to take the message of salvation to others by our sacrifice. But not only in sacrifice, but also in service. And uh, this whole psalm reminds us that uh, Christ is our Passover. He was sacrificed for us. He has become our salvation. He has gone all the way to the cross. It isn't Palm Sunday. It's a Sunday next before Easter. And he's gone ahead of us. Have you noticed that in the church we use the word service in different ways? Uh, I think you'll find in the notice sheet it talks about tonight as being an evening service. We talk about morning service and evening service. I, I, I like it. But you see, service is not just what we do in church or primarily what we do in church. We are called to go out in service. And the service we do in church should send us out the better equipped to serve him. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes that we are to present our bodies a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service, the old version, your spiritual act of worship, the new version, and both are reasonable translations of the Greek. That is to say, as we present our bodies back to Christ, we are offering ourselves as a living worship to him always. But we're going out to serve him. Because, I, because I'm off the bench for today, they'd already planned the service and therefore I, I, I didn't get my usual chance to get the last hymn. And I wanted my last hymn to be King of Kings, Majesty. So when you're going out, you can sing it quietly to yourself. King of Kings, Majesty. Where's the, the verse which comes, In royal robes I don't deserve, I live to serve your majesty. I love that bit, phrase. In royal robes? He's the one who should wear the royal robes, not me. But in royal robes, I don't deserve. I'm part of the kingly entourage, and yet I, I live to serve his majesty. Would that be true of you? And you see, the challenge, I think, of this Sunday is that as we think of the events of Palm Sunday and all that it led to, it is something which we look back and say, thank you. It is that which should make us look out with deep love to share with others, and to look in and say, how dedicated am I to that Savior? I haven't uh, talked about any of the big events happening in our world. I always think preaching should always be linked with the world in which we live. And there are two things that dominate the horizon, aren't there? There was all the march into London yesterday, whatever your views on all that. I was just thinking how different that was. They called this last bit the Festival of Light. Do you remember the Festival of Light? Thirty years ago, people marched on London with a Festival of Light, with the banner of the cross, with the gospel. We didn't break windows. We didn't shout obscenities. We took the Festival of Light. Very unimportant. The, the BBC television cameras weren't all over the place to see that. That was unimportant. Yesterday, of course, is much more dramatic. Well, you could argue the reason, the value of yesterday, if you wish. I'm just trying to contrast. In the world in which we live, is it possible that we as Christians 
standing firm for what we believe in the reality of our world with all its political upheaval, are not ashamed to be in the festival of light. People aren't ashamed to protest. Are we ashamed? The word protestant, of which I am one, is not just protesting against. The word means protest. Saying out. Testifying on behalf of. That's what it means. And the other thing, finally. The events that are happening in the world. The dramatic events in Japan. The dramatic events in the Middle East. I have two simple thoughts. Marge and I have been privileged to go to Japan on three or four occasions, preaching. And uh, in Japan, if you want to find a church, you won't find buildings like this hard at all. In Tokyo, so you go to a hotel and you look up to the 12th floor of these big hotels and you'll see a huge cross. That's where the people of God are. You know where to find them. They meet in the conference center and the hotel, wherever it is. That's the church. On the one occasion I'd been on my own previously to Korea and feeling very, very lonely in Korea and looking out the window, I was very lonely in Seoul. I didn't know a soul in Seoul. I like to get one across this one. I didn't know a soul in Seoul. But as I looked out the, the window of my hotel bedroom, I saw illuminated crosses all over that hugely church-going city. And I knew I was at home. The cross dominated it. Have you ever thought, dare you pray as I pray almost every day, dare you pray that in, in the Middle East where there's so much unrest now, upheaval in every country, you realize, don't you, that that was once the cradle of the Christian church. That was once the area where the cross remained supreme. What do we pray about what's going to happen? Oh, yes, we want evil regimes to be thrown down. Of course we do. But what to take their place? Militant, Islam, terrorists? Is that what we want? Dare we pray that somehow the cross of Jesus might once again dominate that part of the world? Then the strange sovereignty of God, whose story this world is, that yet there may be a turning back to God there. And I, I do dare to pray that. And you see, the only hope for that world, the only hope for the church of which we are part, is that we'll come once again under the shadow of the cross. Not just as a symbol, but as a reality. That's there I find my peace. It's there I find my hope. No, okay, I, I didn't get my choice of song. You can sing King of Kings Magister. I'm very happy about him. We're going to sing in a moment. If it's all to do with glory, it's the song they did sing on the first Palm Sunday. All glory, Lord, and honor. Now, we're never going to go on a Palm Sunday walk, but I do hope that we'll, uh, we'll bring glory and honor. Do you know, at the beginning of the letter to the Galatians, which I've been studying, ready for my bit on Good Friday, at the end of chapter 1 in Galatians, Paul says this, and they glorified God in me. Because he was special? Because he was a great uh, theologian? No, because he once persecuted the faith. But now he preaches it. And so they glorified God in me. What a great joy it would be if people would bring glory to God because the way we live 
The verse Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I want my life in some measure to, so to be seen by the world out there that it might bring glory to my Saviour who went the way of the cross for me. Let me pray before we sing that hymn.